Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we are talking about A Haunting in Venice. The third Hercule Poirot film is out. We are talking about it. We've seen it. We covered Death in the Nile way back on the, on the show, ways back. And I'm excited to talk about this third one. Uh, also covering Theater Camp, a indie comedy over on Hulu. Also starring uh, Ayoetta Beery, who we just covered last week in Bottoms. Uh, she's in this movie in a small part. Um, but that's definitely not the biggest thing that's going on in Theater Camp. I'm excited to talk about it. Stick around for that review. We're going to talk about a couple trailers. Some exciting things coming up on this show. Uh, and the first thing we need to get to before we talk about any of it has got to be the news. Uh, and it's a light news week this week. And that's okay. It's a light news week mostly because there's strikes going on in Hollywood. Still ongoing. And I wish I could get on here and tell you that there's some hot update or that we have a cool story to report on. But we don't. Uh, reportedly tomorrow, uh, the AMPTP, AMPTP and SAG-AFTRA and the WGA are supposed to meet and review terms again. But if that's like any previous strike up update nothing's going to change the studios are going to say you should have taken our first deal we're not changing and we're just going to keep the wheels turning so that's the strike update Andy, any uh i don't know any hot takes on the strikes uh other than they you know they're still going on it's still getting tough um weird week in where a couple of kind of live variety shows tried to return uh drew barrymore was making headlines bill maher uh they were trying to say oh no we don't really use uh sag writers uh we we are we're a new they were basically trying to pass themselves off as a news show and not uh, a written right. show of any and huge backlash uh drew barrymore came out and made an apology video and was acting like people had to see your show or something. And there was like, there's nothing I can do except not have your show. Uh, so she took down her apology. Her show has done the right thing and it's not returning as long with Bill Maher's show and uh, several other kind of daytime TV shows that were going to be a thing. So that, yeah, <laughs> that's been the weekend drama. And we, it's interesting. I heard something else about, um, this was actually on the Carmoda Mayo show that, you know, this, it definitely is a tough time because it's like we're in month four or five now of these people not not working. And, uh, you know, one thing they said is that freelancing is is always a tough gig, you know, and if uh, if you're not prepared for it, then maybe it's it's not maybe it's not your bag because freelancing is, is always just uncertain. And so this yeah. is one of those very un uncertain times. I can't believe how long it's been going on. Uh, the Barrymore and Meyer shows, like coming back and then swiftly not coming back, is the right thing. And I think that's worth celebrating anytime a public figure can say, hey, you know what? I was wrong about this and I'm learning and growing and changing. That's good. And people should accept that. That's a good thing. People can change, right? Everybody has the capacity to change. Uh, most people, anyway. Uh, that being said, the dismount was absolutely hilarious. Yeah, like Barrymore puts out an apology video and then retracts it, and then the next day is like, oh, we're not actually not going to do it. Mara, meanwhile, made some excuse like, well, now that they're going back to the negotiating table, I want to give people... And it's like, no, dude, you could just apologize and say you were wrong, but he's in a politics space. like He's not going to do that. One thing I do think is interesting uh, in the lack of press or interesting interviews, stuff to talk about that we've had because of the ongoing strikes, uh, is this really cool thing from Nia DaCosta, uh, who's the new director of The Marvels, of course, which is coming out soon. Uh, she did an interview with Vanity Fair uh, talking about her history, uh, her work uh, with Jordan Peele on Candyman, uh, which was a tremendous film. We, we both reviewed that on the show, really liked Candyman, uh, and kind of where she's at now. 
in the Marvel universe, right? Uh, her work as a black uh, black female director. Mar- the Marvels would be the highest budgeted film for a black female director ever at $130 million. Big deal. Um you know, what that means, like how people treat her on set, like how she tries to run her set. And, and overall, that's all really good. But one of the things I, I wanted to point out here uh, that's really interesting, something Andy and I have talked about for a long time on the show, is this line right at the end of it when she talks about how important it is to develop a good movie in the Marvel Universe versus like a good small part of the larger narrative of the Marvel universe, right? All the Marvel movies connect, all the shows connect. They have characters that come in and out. There's kind of a, uh, you know, a, a rough spider web over all of it. And, and the, the spider on that web is Kevin Feige, right? Marvel executive producer. He runs it all. And she said here in this interview, this quote, uh, the overarching narrative is secondary to the narrative of any individual film in the Marvel universe. Um, but for the Marvels, it is a Kevin Feige production. It's his movie. So I think you have to live in that reality as director. But I tried to go in with the knowledge that some of you, or me in her case, is going to take a back seat. It's Kevin Feige's movie, right? Nita Costa's just directing it. Andy, you, you've been talking about this for a while. Can you translate this for people who maybe don't, don't understand? So the MCU and, and a lot of Disney projects it's part of a big machine and a lot of these movies are kind of built by committee. You're basically told what you're doing. Like this is the script. These are the actors make it out, just get it done. You're just kind of the overseeing the project. And this is exactly what this sounds like. And it almost sounds like she's trying to distance herself from the movie a little bit. It, it sounds like a little bit of damage control of being, well, you know, if it, no, it's not my thing. It's not my project. It's actually someone else's. I'm just, you know, and that's kind of what people do when things are not going to be super great. And I just don't know what to think about the Marvels. I want it to be successful. It's like Marvel's first all-female or female-centric uh, film, uh, superhero film. And it seems to me like it's almost being hung out to dry. It, it looks to kind of have this silly storyline. Uh, you got to do a bunch of homework to know what's going on in, in, in the form of TV shows. Uh, there are two characters, Kamala Khan and the other Marvels that I can't think of her name that you, you would have had Monica to have watched. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, that you would have had to watch WandaVision and uh, Miss Marvel to know, to know who they even are. So this, uh, unfortunately, this is what we see a lot of is that like uh, people are not really, directors don't get to be themselves. They don't really get to put their fingerprint on these films. They're just doing what they're told. Like a lot of the, the, the cancel the Star Wars project, it's the same thing. It's it's not really exciting when someone gets attached to it because you know you're just kind of being told what to do. Yeah, uh, I think one of the things that's really poignant when you're poignant uh, on point i guess is the word i'm looking for term i'm looking for uh, when you said that i think it's kind of damage control uh it's worth mentioning that vanity fair very explicitly says in here that uh she has totally decoupled from social media nita costa in anticipation of this movie uh she is quick to point out and i think this is a valid point uh that anna Bowden, who directed captain marvel uh directed one of the highest grossing Marvel films, right? But also was the recipient of a lot of online vitriol from the dark corners of the Marvel fandom. And there are dark corners, just like Star Wars. There's a bunch of people who do not like when people play with their toys or what they think are their toys, which is really silly. Um, So she's kind of starting to back off a little bit from what the response is going to be. And I just, I don't know. I think it's interesting that she says this to Vanity Fair. Yeah, it's Kevin Feige's movie. Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> I think you're right. Like, I think it's it's a bit movie by committee. That being said, I'm excited to see it. You know, I I, I think it'll be fine. I, I don't think it'll be great. I'm skeptical. I don't know how it's going to perform at the box office, but we'll see. I've been surprised on this show before. Uh, speaking of the box office and the story this week, uh, Shah Rukh Khan's Juwan uh, exceeds $100 million at the box office. If you don't know what this movie is, uh, Andy's going to tell you all about it. Because I didn't really know what this was, and he sent me a link to it. <laughs> Check it out. We've watched a bit about it. What, 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 what is this, Andy? Uh, so this is uh, an an Indian film action epic. Um, Shah Rukh Khan is an Indian action star. He He's like basically their version of Tom Cruise. He has been working in in the as an action star for like thirty years. He's in he's in his late fit, I think he's almost sixty, still doing these movies. I mean, very much like Tom Cruise is like in great shape, does all his own stunts, and they're I mean, Indian action movies are insane. Like they're so over the top, tons of action. They're also made on much smaller budgets. Like we we saw Patan that was made on thirty million. I think this is about the same. And so when these movies are successful, they're way more successful because they have much smaller budgets. You can kind of see it in the movie making. A lot of it is you can tell they're doing some cheap green green screen stuff, but it doesn't matter because they're so successful. So now Jawan, which is another kind of spice thriller in this genre that he does, has also made a hundred million dollars, just like his previous uh, action movie, uh, Patan, which he, which uh, these two movies he had not he had not done a movie in like five years. So this was kind of his big return to action filmmaking, uh, and it's a huge hit. And we we did consider watching it for the show, but it's very long. It is two hours forty five minutes. Um, a lot of Indian films in general are very long because uh, they have oh they have intermissions in them built in, which is actually kind of nice. But because of that, it's they make very long like three and four hour films. So yeah, um, not to but mention, that's what that's what Joan is. Not to mention, depending on which American cinema you go, they either will or won't skip the intermission, which is super lame. Uh, is what it is, though. Uh, and worth mentioning that being able to shoot a three-hour film on $30 million and make $100 million off of it is not an easy feat. I feel like Hollywood loves so much to like spend big and win big. That's the whole goal, right? What if we spend $130 million on the Marvels and it does great? Think about how much we'll make. When really, it's like maybe the, the smaller budget, bigger win, like idea might work better over time but i, I don't i'm not an accountant i, I don't know how it works I'm certainly i i don't i can't do hollywood math that's for sure um what i can tell you is Joan is a hit uh and and for what it's worth like we covered patan on the show it's good we both liked patan patan solid we also covered rr on the show which is still our highest viewed review to date over on the youtube channel my god people are excited about rr and rr also great, available on Netflix. I don't know where Patan is, but I'm sure you can find it out there. Uh, Shah Rukh Khan seems to be pulling out banger after banger, which is weird because reportedly in, what, 2018 he had a bit of a down year, but he's back and bigger than ever. And apparently he's got another movie coming out this year as well, uh, probably Dunky, uh, over in December. So uh, my man's coming back in a big way. If you haven't heard of him before, just keep it near to the ground. You may hear about him in the future, right? This may this may not be the last time you hear about Shah Rukh Khan and his uh, incredible performance at the box office. But one more story this week, uh, also from the box office, Haunting in Venice uh, out this week. We're just about to cover, I swear. Give me just a few minutes to talk about this. We'll jump into the review. And none too, all but tie for number one as movie going slows post-summer. Uh, I did not think these movies were going to make the same amount of money, Andy. I really didn't. I'm going to be honest. I would I, I, this, The skeptic in me would have said none too's 
going to blow it out of the water. But here we are. People are turning out for Haunting in Venice. Well, The Nun 2 is in its second uh, week. So, that you know, movies are always going to kind of have a downfall or a, or a drop off the second week. But it's still making absurd amounts of money. The Nun 2 has made uh, almost $160 million on a $22 million budget. Uh, again, P- the studios need to learn from the these budgets, man, because like horror just when it when it hits, it hits, and it's already a, a huge success. Um, we're probably gonna get the Nun three at this point, and this movie is doing better than all the other movies in the Conjuring universe, uh, except for its predecessor, the first Nun film. Um, it's crazy because I heard that uh, Fast Ten didn't really make any profit, and it made like seven hundred million dollars <laughs> just because the budget w- was so uh, outrageous, and that of course includes advertising. Uh, a Haunting in Venice starting off not not strong, but not weak, kind of middle of of the road, uh, getting about forty million dollars globally on a sixty million dollar budget. It might get a, have a little bit of of legs. Probably it'll go to uh, uh, VOD pretty pretty soon uh definitely starting to see diminished returns on these agatha christie properties i didn't realize this but the first uh remake of murder on the orient express uh from 2016-17 was a huge hit global hit 350 million dollars um which kind of kicked off this poirot assance that (laughs) that we that we have um, but then Death on the Nile was plagued with problems, COVID, Army Hammer wanted to eat people, uh, and that was a very expensive film, $90 million budget, was kind of a flop, but they still let Kenneth Branagh make the th- third, f- the th- this book into one, uh, So, but that's kind of where we are now. I want to say for the record that Death in the Nile only made like $12 million when it opened. And of course, the box office is still in recovery mode, but for what it's worth, $12 million opening versus the third film turning out $37 million opening weekend, big jump. Also, uh, Haunting in Venice is $30 million cheaper to shoot than Death in the Nile. Death in the Nile costs $90 million. Haunting in Venice costs 60 And I know we're going to talk about it in the review in a second, but I just want to say before we get out in front of it, you can literally see the difference on screen that one looks better than the other. This movie looks better than Nile, which is crazy, but Nile is chock full of CGI and it's a whole lot of green screens and just does not, does not pull you in. I think at the way Venice does. So I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, one other story, this, well, it's not a story, but also from the box office, uh, dumb money starring Paul Dano and Pete Davidson is kind of coming out. This is supposed to have a wide release on the 22nd, but now it's only in like six theaters. Sony says they're slow. They're, they're, they're slow peddling it because of the strike and they can't get anybody to promote it. Right. They can't get the stars out. Can't get the writers out, but like, I'm pretty sure it's based on a true story. So just like Gran Turismo, I'm surprised you're not just like getting the actual people to sit down and do interviews or zooms or something. You know, like why don't you get the the, the what, what was his name, Roaring Kitty or something? The guy Paul Dano plays. He's a YouTuber. Yeah, he's he sits in front of a camera all day. I'm sure you could get him to talk about this movie. But whatever. Uh, just just like Gran Turismo, Sony's Sony's working out their strats, right? Like same studios, same movies. Uh, with that, I think we should probably segue into uh, the first show of the episode, first film of the episode. Uh, I'm going to be taking the summary on this one. So please excuse my clumsy delivery. The movie is A Haunting in Venice. So, as Andy opened up, uh, The Haunting in Venice is the third film in the Hercule Poirot series. Uh, IMDb's got the summary. In post-World War II Venice, Hercule Poirot, world-renowned detective, now retired and living in his own exile, reluctantly attends a seance. But when one of the guests is murdered, it's up to the former detective to once again uncover the killer. 
Uh, third film in the series, uh, directed by and starring Kenneth Branagh as our titular Hercule Poirot, uh, who is seemingly just always looking forward to turning out another one of these. I, after Andy and I saw Death in the Nile, we he really loves thought, these. yeah, there's not going to be any more. Like he's he's passionate and he turns out a great performance in it. Uh, but he's they're not going to do another one. Uh, but they did. And, and I think the reason Haunting in Venice has been made is twofold. And number one, smaller budget, right? Uh, from $90 million on Nile to $60 million here. You know, cut that, cut that, cut a third off the top of that. Number two, uh, the lean on horror. Early trailers for Haunting in Venice um, didn't even indicate at all that it was a Hercule Poirot mystery. They don't say his name. They don't talk about it. Whereas early trailers for Niall very much were trying to tie into the Murder on the Orient Express crowd, right? Like, come back and see another Agatha Christie mystery. The posters for this featured very little, like, Agatha Christie branding. You didn't really see that it was a Poirot mystery. Like, you notice how Glass Onion, Ryan Johnson's second Knives Out film, said Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery at the bottom? None of this for A Haunting in Venice. None of that for Death in the Nile. They want this to kind of stand apart as its own thing. And by leaning into the horror, right, and, and putting it out in October and kind of chasing the, the none too audience, but the Bloomhouse crowd, I think maybe 20th Century Fox Disney was hoping that this would uh, kind of pull people in. And it seems like it, for the most part, has. Uh, not quite the all-star cast, I should say, that the other movies have either. Along with the smaller budget, I would say the cast has downsized a little bit. Uh, you've got Brana as Hercule Poirot. Uh, Michelle Yeoh, excitingly, uh, as as uh, Mrs. Reynolds, our mysterious uh, medium, I'm going to say, seance. Uh, Jamie Dornan uh, as a father in the, in the film. Tina Fey as uh, an avid writer, friend of Poirot. Uh, and one other, Kelly Riley as Rowena Drake, I wanted to mention as the the, the, the the anguished mother who's trying to speak to her daughter from beyond the grave, invites Mrs. Reynolds over for the seance. But before we get into the plot, Andy, what'd you think? So I started off very hopeful about this. Like I, I thought that the first act was really strong. We, we meet our very interesting cast of characters. We meet uh, a semi-retired uh, Poirot Tina Fey shows shows up to get him back in the the game, and th- there's a a lot of kind of creepiness, and they're filming on location. Like the film looks great because they're they don't have to do a ton of CGI. They're in Venice, they're in in an actual palazzo, in these rooms. It looks great. It's spooky. It's a little creepy. And then the second act gets gets here, and it just grinds to a halt it gets so slow and you have the, the, the this is usually where things get more exciting in these movies uh because th- this is where everyone gets interrogated and you get to start to see who who has a motive or would have wanted them dead or you know it's supposed to be the more exciting part of the film and it just like these interrogations take forever there's lots of pauses and and breaks and it, it just dragged it, it the middle of it got really boring for me but I did love how it looked. I did like the the cast. I, I just think the script got a little slow uh, in the middle. But it, but it looks great. It looks better than the other two films, I think. Yeah, I think it's an episodic feature. Like Haunting in Venice does a really good job of kind of standing on its own. You do not have to have seen the previous films. You could totally go see this as a one-off. You may not even know that it's connected to the other two. I'm sure there's some theater goers who walk into the theater like, 
oh, I didn't know this was related, but there's no reference to Nile. There's no reference to Express, really. You just get Poirot as this, uh, you know, retired but world-renowned detective. Like, there's people lining up outside of his palazzo in, in Venice to talk to him, and he's got this new bodyguard who's like, back off, man. Like, <laughs> don't talk to my guy. He's retired. He's heard every mystery in the world. He doesn't want to do it, right? And then Tina Fey shows up as this, like, charming... Uh, film set in 1947, I should say, uh, is this charming, like you know, late, late, late forties, uh, writer. Who's like, I, I, I got a scoop Poirot and you're, you're going to help me get it. Just do, do me a solid from your old pal who helped make you famous by writing about you. Um, and she invites him to the seance. Uh, they go to this like beautiful, like, like torn down, uh, palazzo. They say like 12 times. That's why I keep saying it. Uh, where, where they, uh, visit the Reynolds, not the Reynolds family, uh, the Drake family. Yes. Uh, whose daughter tragically, uh, uh, became ill and, and felt like she was hearing demons and, and, and spirits uh, in their haunted palazzo and ended up uh, uh, tragically committing suicide. Uh, Miss Reynolds, uh, the, the world-renowned medium, comes out to summon her a, l- a little bit and have a, have a kind of thing. And it's, it's during this process where uh, Poirot says, like, you know, I, th- I think you're full of it. Let me be clear. I've lived a whole life uh, solving de- solving murders. You, you, you're not, you, there's, there's nothing to this. Um, but then he starts experiencing things in in the place, right? The haunting of the title. Uh, and that's when he starts to question whether or not, like, it's real or he's losing it. And, and that creates, I think, an interesting aspect of these movies that the other two haven't had right like i think the the other two films are much more grounded the bit of spiritualism here combined with um i should say really tremendous lighting uh really tremendous lighting uh and and tons of shadows and darkness like tons of shots with like odd framing and like something over in the corner you can just kind of see uh, and like five too many little jump scares for sure uh, creates a movie that like feels really tonally different from the other two and leaves you not having to have seen any of the others to know what goes on. Like, so like kudos to Brana, like for, for, for crafting like a third adventure that feels completely on its own. Um, I, I didn't expect that. I was a little skeptical going in. I can say confidently like this one stands apart uh, in a good way. Yeah, I, I think this film is really well made, and you're absolutely right. Like the, it's a dark and stormy night. Like it's pouring outside. The canals of Venice are are flooding. There's lightning and thunder, and you know, winds blowing. Uh, wind blows the window open. That kind of stuff. It does a good job of kind of setting atmosphere, and it's definitely borrowing from the horror genre. Maybe a little bit too much because there's a number of cheap jump scares, some of which work most of which don't really, if you've ever seen a horror movie uh, in your life. I, I wanted to talk about Tina Fey's character. I haven't seen Tina Fey in, in a movie in a long time, and I have a hard time seeing Tina Fey just not be as not yeah, Tina Fey. As me too. The, She's always like, doing an SNL bit, right? Like, I can never really take her seriously. Yeah, and her um, her accent is kind of all over the place. Sometimes she just sounds like Tina Fey, which sounds too modern for this movie. And other times it sounds like she's trying to kind of maybe put on a, a transatlantic accent or, you know, an accent of that period. But she never sticks with it. And I'd, I'm just never really convinced of her character. Um, you know, the costume looks fine, but she just, she just doesn't fit the period. The way that... Branagh does as Poirot like he loves playing this role he's so good at it yeah it's it's true like and that that stood out in Niall I remember a couple of monologues he's got in there where he like 
really is. I mean, he's doing it like Shakespeare. Like he goes all the way for it. And I think like Faye is a result of like the limited casting availability. It's so funny to see the budgets tumble in these films and like see the cast follow them. The first film's got like Johnny Depp and that exciting new girl that was in Star Wars that just came out, uh, Daisy Ridley, and like I think Dame Judi Dench or Helen Mirren is in that movie, right? The second film's like a little smaller, but yeah, like Josh Gad is in it, right? Like, and the second film's like a little smaller. Some of the back cast isn't that important, isn't that big, but you still get like Gal Gadot, a hot off the set of Wonder Woman, and Army Hammer, like moments before he became a cannibal. And like, you still had like some, like uh, Emma Mackey, right? Like, who's been in some stuff and it was just up for Lois Lane. Like, she was one of the exciting uh, front runners. Um, This movie has rolled it all the way back, right? We've got like, three or four decent people on the cast, Michelle Yeoh and Tina Fey, who are both, you know, good for sure. Michelle Yeoh just won, just won an Oscar, but like, I'm not sure that was happening while they were shooting this feature. Uh, Jamie Dornan coming off like what? 50 shades of gray. And, and a few other things, of course, Kelly Riley, who I've seen in a bunch of things, but I can never really place like one in particular. Um, all solid. And then everybody else. I, I, I don't know. Those are the only people I know. Oh, I should say, uh, uh, the son of the, the, the Drake family in, in this film, the son is, uh, Jude Hill who played uh, buddy in Belfast. Brana's, uh, last ah. big good movie yes right he put that out the same year as death and nile yeah he's the he's the belfast kid so like i'm i'm glad bron is pulling for him at least he's back in here um i do think there's some limits in uh performances but i i think the performances in the second half like you said the, the second act are where that comes out the most um like any good whodunit right like your your first act is introduce everybody bring everybody in and then the crime happens, right? Something happens to kick off the investigation. Act two, investigation. You get out the detective's notebook. You start asking who was in the who you know who was in the mansion with the candlestick at twelve o'clock. Whatever. You work your way through your interviews. Act three, resolution. Like maybe maybe some kind of twist at the end of act two to really make it exciting. But act three, like who done it? That's what you want to find out. And it feels like this movie is still aimed firmly at the audience that would like that. It's very traditional. Right. There's there's some of those interviews where like a character will start crying. Actually, many of them. I one more thing. A lot of those interviews are like extreme close up. Like you'll see a character like from chin up to like the mid forehead and half of them have tears in their eyes. I swear Brana told every one of them, get a good cry going before we do your monologue. You know what I mean? And by the time you're watching like the fifth one, you realize they all start to look the same. Where the film stands yeah. apart visually <laughs> is it's, I know, yeah, I, I realized, I forgot about that till you said Andy and I was like, oh yeah. But where, where the film stands apart visually is it's scenery and, and it's landscapes and lighting um, and how practical it is. I'll talk about that in a minute, but I've been talking too much. Andy, where, where are you at? So, yeah, like I said, the 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 investigation, which is usually the more interesting part of, of the, the film, I, it was definitely that way in Death on the Nile, where you especially got kind of dug into more of the backstory. It just didn't have that here. And it's a lot of just like people talking in rooms, long extended dramatic monologues of varying, uh, you know, intensity. The the one that uh, Jamie Dornan does as the, do- he's a doctor suffering from kind of post-World War II, uh, just uh, PTSD. And like he, he talks about liberating a concentration camp in Bergen-Belsen and, you know, he he has a very powerful monologue, but then again, you get it five other times from other people, and it's just so slow. And that's intercut with 
um, you know, Poirot also kind of seemingly having visions or thinking he's seen apparitions or uh, kind of th things like that. And it just really drags down this this middle act. It It is a fun piece, but I think if it just were like 15 minutes short, if it would have been a hot 90 minutes, I think we would have got there. But man, that second act is drags. I was with yes. with with a friend, and the, and they were like, "If you weren't, if I didn't know that you had to watch this whole thing for your show, I would have left." Oh my god! Okay, I don't think it's walkout worthy, but I respect that opinion. Yeah, no, I the movie tries to spice it up, like because it falls in those rails and starts to feel real, you know, samey. Uh, it changes it up by a few ways. Yeah, one, giving our characters interesting dimension, like Jamie Dornan's doctor. Number two, uh, lots of you know little odd happenings around the mansion to keep it keep keep the haunting aspect kind of going, which is decent stuff. Where Rose starts to hear stuff, and you're starting you're sitting in your chair trying to put the mystery together and wondering, okay, do other people hear that? Is this a bit? Where could that be coming from? Uh, admittedly, I think it may go too far. Uh, I was trying to solve. The, you know, trying to solve it as you go, like you do in any good whodunit. And I was like, maybe there's, maybe there's like mold in this watery Venice house or something, and they're all inhaling mold spores yeah, and seeing got, visions. Like, got, like I could not poisoning. put it together. Yeah, and 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 maybe you know, I'm I'm not I'm not the world's greatest detective. I'm not. I don't know if anybody can put this one together by the time it gets to the end. But relatively satisfying, I think. Uh, I want to talk about why this movie looks so much different from Nile. Um, Death and Nile, like Murder on the Orient Express, is functionally a vehicle movie. I know it's a whodunit, but like both films take place basically in a vehicle. Nile spends more time out of it, but Murder on the Orient Express is, of course, on a train. Death and Nile is in this large, like, private ferry they have. And Nile really suffered for me because so much of it is green screen. Like, they had a practical set of the boat, I think, but it was just on a green screen set, like soundstage. And then they just, you know, put all of everything in post. They'd light it the best they could and then uh, fill in the landscape later in editing. Um, and it comes off looking real phony a lot. It comes off looking real phony a lot. Uh, and it's so, it, it, part of the reason is because it's so sunny. It has to be sunny, right? They're in Egypt, like in the middle of the summer. Like the sun is pounding on every aspect of that boat. And it makes it like a real challenge, at least for me to try to get into. Cause like every time you see an exterior shot of the boat, it's like the fakest thing you've ever seen in your life. Looks like a, looks like a photo out of a highlights magazine, but this movie, like, I think maybe twice, like two or three times I saw noticeable green screen footage. Otherwise, everything's practical. And I do think a lot of it's still soundstage, but they built sets and they lit them effectively, like using darkness in the same way Nile uses sunlight. It is dark all the time. It's like Brana got off the set of Nile was like, never again am I shooting a movie with this much sunlight because you could see everything and it makes it makes bad CGI worse. This movie goes the exact opposite way. It's literally cheaper and it's literally better for it. It's, cra it's crazy to me this movie was $30 million less like you'd never know looking at it because it looks like it's better put together than the other than, than the yeah. previous feature uh so there, that's there's know, some worth mentioning there are such terrible scenes in death on the nile when they're like looking up at the pyramids because there's a scene where one of the one of the characters is like painting on one of the great pyramids of giza and it's he's obviously not there because first of all, I don't think the geography works that that yes. that well that way. Also, there's a, a lot of city buildings around the pyramids now, um, and so it's just like the most fake Egypt pyramid-looking thing you've ever seen. So yeah, the, yeah, 
a haunting in Venice works so much better just by b- using a lot more practical sets. Yeah, it really does. Like, I, it's worth mentioning. And overall, like, I think, I for me, the lacing of Poirot kind of losing his mind, maybe. Uh, whether or not there are actually spirits at this this evil uh, haunted orphanage, haunted house they're in. Um, that stuff, I think, adds a layer to it that makes it just a bit more engaging than Niall. Because Niall really falls in that trap in Act 2. It, it keeps exciting by having a character try to escape the boat. And so if we can't find him, we got to find the, you know. That stuff's fine, but this has a little bit more something to it. Um, it which again, like, is surprising. I was I was skeptical going in. I thought Nile was going to be good, and I came out of it like Nile's not good. This I was like, well, this will probably be like Nile. Um, I think it comes out better, uh, which is very surprising. Uh, but it shows uh, Bronis still got it uh, definitely, and he cares a lot about this character. Like, clearly he cares. Clearly he cares to do this a third time, you know, and to shoot it so different than the other two, and like chase something that's a little bit more unique. Maybe even spend a little time uh, gestating on the nature of life and death, right, and whether or not there's an afterlife. Like, that's all uniquely interesting, and I'm I'm really pleased to say that's all here. And and despite my expectations, haunting in Venice. Better than, better than I thought. Um, one more mention for the soundtrack. I don't know if, Andy, you had any thoughts on that, but I'm probably about ready for reviews. The I don't know. Where you at? Os, uh, score by Oscar-winning composer Hilda Gudnadotter, who won the Oscar uh, for the score of Joker. What a man. Um, so, yeah, she returns for this good score as well. Uh, it's funny. I, I had moments when I liked the score. It's long drone stuff. And then there's one fight sequence in the middle of the movie where it's so laughably bad. I was like, what intern did they get to set to 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 score this scene? Like, it doesn't work at all. The audio's over it. They're, like, struggling. Um, I'm going to have to rewatch it, I guess, with that in mind. Because, yeah, by the end of the movie, overall, I was like, score's pretty good. And I saw the name in the credits. And I was like, oh, my God, Oscar-winning composer for Joker. Yeah, turning out the Death on the Nile score. Certainly didn't skimp over there. Uh, Andy, would you recommend Death on the Nile? I would, but I would say save it haunting, for streaming. Uh, what would you, uh, God, would you recommend Haunting in Venice? Jesus. <laughs> I, <laughs> would you recommend Haunting in Venice? I would say save it for, for streaming. Uh, it is a fun little movie. It's much better than uh, Death on the Nile. It, it is a little creepy. It's got a, a lot of horror influence. It's an interesting mystery. It's, mu- it's much more kind of a middle-of-the-road kind of popcorn flick. It does really drag in the, the second act. I think it could tighten up the script a lot better. The, ca- the cast is really diverse and interesting. Tina Fey is a little bit difficult to see as this like 1940s uh famous writer but but she does the good is the best she can kenneth branagh is great and is just loving uh playing hercule Poirot. so uh a fun time but i would say save it for streaming i'm in the same boat i think venice is not bad uh i think it's better than nile i i actually think I, you know if you're interested yeah it might be worth going to see in theaters um it's not particularly cinematic, but there's decent work in here. Some creative stuff, a couple of uh, really clever handheld shots, and one great shot in particular, actually, I forgot about this, where Poirot feels like he's seeing things, and they lock a camera on his body facing his head. It's great. It's the, it's the rec room for a dream shot, right? Like, I love it. <laughs> uh, it's nice to see Brana flexing out to something new. It's nice to see him exploring something different, playing with light and color. Um, not bad. I, I was. I'm really surprised. I, I I'm really surprised. Death and Nile. Uh, Death, Death and Nile. Good lord. Haunting in Venice is better than I thought it would be. Uh, I don't want to butcher the name again, so I'm going to move off of it. Andy, we got to talk about some things that are coming out soon. What do we call this segment? 
it's time for the trailer park. So we're going to be bringing a couple of trailers uh, that just dropped in the past week. Some interesting stuff to talk about. The first is finally we are seeing footage of Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, the sequel to the 2017-2018 Aquaman film, which is Warner Brothers and DC's most successful uh, comic book film of the last 10 years at made over a billion dollars. The only property of DC's to make over a billion dollars in the last 10 years is not counting the, the Dark Knight. Those movies were very successful, but uh, the DCEU has been plagued as all, most of the movies have underperformed. This one has drastically overperformed, and so we're back. We see uh, Arthur Curry, the Aquaman. Uh, he's a father now, has a young fish son <laughs> thing. Uh, we see him teaming up uh, with the last film's uh, antagonist, uh, Ocean Master, uh, played by Patrick Wilson. That looks like a weird buddy cop kind of comedy. And we see that uh, Black Manta is back. He was the villain in the first film. Uh, And we see tons of CGI, lots of ocean battles like we saw in the first first one. I'm not going to lie. I was really skeptical about this, but I I saw this trailer and I was like, I'm kind of excited for Aquaman. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I'm predicting another billion dollar film here. Uh, this film just travels, I think it's going to travel well o- overseas. Uh, it's a big skeptical, spectacle rather, and uh, spectacle tra- just travels really well uh, overseas. You don't have to understand like American culture or English. You just watch the fish battles uh, underwater and let the money roll in. I I did not see Aquaman 1. As somebody who's not caught up, I don't think this movie's going to do well. <laughs> Andy's right. Andy's right. Spectacle sells overseas. This movie will make money for sure. Like DC will get the return on investment. It'll be fine. I don't think there will be a third one. I don't think this is supposed to tie into the DC extended universe or anything. Um, Looks fine. I didn't know he had a son. That's a surprise to me. Uh, I'm excited to see Yaya Abdul-Mateen back doing his thing. I assume that's him playing Black Manta, right? Uh, Patrick Wilson, hot off the set of, what is it? The Conjuring 5. Insidious Five, fifteen, yeah, whichever one he just directed, The Red Door, yeah, um, which made a Insidious, ton of money, yeah. right? Like, boy, hot, hot new director Patrick Wilson, great. Uh, Aquaman two, can't wait. I, I, I think it looks fine. I guess I'm not, I'm not super excited about it, but maybe I should go back and revisit the first one available now on Max.com. The other trailer we need to talk about is this new A24 feature. Uh, it's called Dream Scenario. It stars Nicolas Cage. Uh, as a hapless family man and professor who finds his life turned upside down when millions of strangers suddenly start seeing them in their dreams. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a weird, weird premise. Uh, Cage plays this uh, balding professor, which is uh, really great because I know a lot of people have, uh, you know, not- notices Cage's hairline for a long time. So anytime he plays somebody balding, like an adaptation where he played Charlie Kaufman, I think nice job like lean right into it um but the idea of cage appearing in people's dreams and like the film showing these visions of him walking around wearing a freddy krueger glove or saving somebody from getting run over by a bus and coming to him and being like what's going on how, how are you doing this and he's like i don't know like i i think it sets up a lot of really great opportunities for yeah, some good quality cage comedy, which according to the rough reviews in the trailer, uh, he is incredible in. And like, boy, who who doesn't love a good Nick Cage performance? Andy, what do you think? 
So I, I wasn't really thrilled by the trailer, but I've heard tons of buzz about this through the uh, like the awards or not the awards, uh, the festival circuit that started. I, I think it's it's going to be premiering at one of these or may have premiered at uh, Venice or Toronto or Telluride. One of these, but I've heard I've heard good things about this, and yeah, I, I've heard that we're we're gonna get some incredible Nick Cage performances, which is always a treat. No, no matter how good or bad the movie, like letting Nick Cage like go to a hundred um, is always is always a treat. It's an interesting premise, and I, I I'm interested to see kind of more of what it's about, like what kinds of themes the movie's gonna be about. Cause it's it's gonna be more than just kind of a surface level scenario. Yeah. Uh, I'm also really interested. I, I, if I had to guess, I think what's going on is people start seeing him in dreams, saving them, and then slowly over the course of the trailer, it seems like he starts showing up in dreams and not saving people, right? And, and suddenly, <laughs> like he becomes a nightmare kind of thing, and people turn on him, like the fame turns to whatever. But I really couldn't tell you what's going to go on. Uh, looks like fun stuff. One more movie to talk about uh, this week on the podcast. Andy's going to take the summary for it. Um, Really excited to talk about this one. Unexpected. Andy, please uh, take it away. Theater camp. So this is uh, a new indie film uh, that came out sometime in 2023. I remember, I think it came out in uh, one of the festivals as well. It's a small film from Searchlight uh, about a theater camp, and it's filmed in that uh, kind of Parks and Rec office mockumentary documentary style um and it's this kind of rundown summer theater camp that that's having financial troubles that has a very eccentric cast of of teachers and and kind of professionals who would have could have but never really made it they have a bunch of talented diva students and there's lots of drama and if you've ever worked at a summer camp or a music camp which i spent many a summer doing exactly that uh, a lot of this is really accurate. It's very funny. Uh, it's very. It also has a lot of really heartwarming moments. Has a lot of really great music, um, despite it being kind of a parody uh, of musicals and musical camp. Um, it actually has a lot, <laughs> a lot of fun times. Uh, so that's our setup. Zach, what'd you think? So I didn't really know what to expect with theater camp. I knew it was kind of this parody of theater kids, which I am not, and I don't know many theater kids in my life. It's a shame. I think they'd probably really enjoy this. Also, yeah, a little bit of a riff on summer camp, a la, I don't know, wet, hot American summer, right? Like kind of this goofy uh, bad news bears kind of thing, right? Kids all go to camp and the people running the camp are basically incompetent. Um, It's got a mockumentary style. Uh, It's shot a lot like... um, Honestly, the way it cuts to like title cards and it just has text on explaining what's going on reminded me a little bit of like Monty Python, the Holy Grail. But um, I think what's interesting about this movie, directed by Nick Lieberman and Molly Gordon. Uh, Molly Gordon stars in the film as Rebecca Diane, the character we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, Nick Lieberman, (laughs) meanwhile, actually shot a short of this movie, uh, I think in 2020 called Theater Camp, starring uh, Molly Gordon, uh, Noah Galvin, and Ben Platt, who are all in this feature. Uh, and that was a lot simpler. This movie was really off the cuff. It's weird. It's weird to look at. It doesn't have a lot of IMDb trivia, but I'll give you the basics. Uh, they shot it in 19 days. They shot it with hardly any money. And reportedly, according to IMDb trivia, take that what it's worth, uh, the whole movie's improv. So they didn't have a script which is insane because it's really funny. And if you didn't have a script and you guys just improv your way through this in 19 days, that's a pretty big feat. It's not a perfect film, especially if you improv it. 
Um, but it's a wild, <laughs> it's a wild statement because the editing is really sharp and there's a lot of really funny lines in here. So I feel like they had to have had at least a, at least something to go off. But certainly the theatrics are all here. Yeah, they definitely had a lot of structure, even if maybe every it wasn't like line by line written. You know, it's kind of in the 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 way that the Judd Apatow crew would improvise things, but there's still a whole lot of like structure and framework to kind of find kind kind of follow. But it is hilarious, and um, like I said, having worked at a camp, it, it's so it's so accurate to the the crazy staff full of divas who are trying to do their best to perform while, while being teachers of, of the theater. Um, like you have like the, the costume guy, the acting guy, the music person. And they are all like, my thing is the most important thing that's happening. You have the, uh, what starts kicks off this whole thing is that, uh, Joan, who's the, the founder of the camp goes into a coma in the opening scene because she there's a strobe light in one of the performances that causes her to have a seizure and go into a coma. This is how the movie starts. And her, like, uh, Gen Z slash millennial influencer son takes over and is trying to, like, you know, uh, influence his way in, into running the camp. And, uh, you know, it's one of these classic things. The bank is going to foreclose if you don't somehow come up with the money. Um, so it has all these, these just really funny setups. Again, you have your... Uh, kids who are incredibly talented. Like, these kids are amazing. Like, it, their play is not being good, but I was like, if you would have had any, a, a kid in, like, like this in your camp, that means they'd be an, an instant star. It's, it's some uh, really good, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, there's a great uh, tryout scene when they're, when they're uh, hosting auditions yes. for, uh, uh, you know, what, what plays people are going to be in. And, uh, you know, a bunch of our creative cast is sitting down at a table in front of the stage. These kids are coming out. They've got a guy playing piano. And the kids are just uh, singing whatever bits of musicals they want. Every one of those kids is good. Everyone. And it's like, it must have been so weird for them to be directed to like, hey, you're going to walk on stage. We're going to film it. Belt your heart out. Really give it your all. This is a comedy. People are meant to laugh. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like tonally, it wouldn't have been easy to communicate this. They did a great job of directing all of these kids in what to do. They're really simple. Most of them are really one note, right? You're not really there for the kids. You're there for uh, Troy Rubinsky, who is uh, Joan's son, who is now running the camp, uh, played by Jimmy Tatro, is this total dude bro who's got a GoPro and a YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the baller foundation it, like. god the baller foundation does not fit in at all with the creatives of the camp uh, ben platt uh, plays amos klobuchar which is such a ridiculous name right next to molly gordon who plays rebecca diane uh, co-writer co-director of the <laughs> that's film. her the first two, her first Re name is rebecca, rebecca diane. <laughs> diane yes right there's no there's no last name listed just rebecca diane uh, the two of them are like this inseparable partner, uh, inseparable partnership who've been at this camp for years. They went to this camp when they were there, uh, when, when they were young. Now they, now they teach at it. Both of them are basically failed performers who always say we're performers who teach acting on the side, but really it's like you're acting teachers who perform sometimes when you can get roles. Uh, Noah Galvin plays Glenn, uh, the tech guy who is a really tremendous performance. Who's basically backseated most of the movie. It's a shame because they're really tremendous. Also fun fact, another IMDb trivia, uh, Ben Platt and Noah Galvin are actually dating in real life. Didn't know that. And their characters Ooh. don't really interact in this movie, but still charming. Uh, additionally, Iowa Beery shows up and Nathan Lee Graham as Clive DeWitt in a really funny role. Amy Starris is Joan. Like overall, like a surprisingly 
rounded cast. Oh, and Patty Harrison, uh, hot off the set of I Think You Should Leave, where she is tremendous in her, in her guest role. She's kind of an antagonist from a rival camp. It's really nice and has like an equestrian <laughs> club and all the kids wear fancy polos. And uh, meanwhile, Adirondacks, which is the name of our uh, uh, kind of main camp, is run it's down so and perfect. crummy. And uh, uh, Carolyn Krause comes over and is like, hey, we'd love to make it, you know, make an offer on this camp. We know you're struggling. And uh, Troy, the entrepreneur, he calls himself, uh, is, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of charm ter- by her yet clever puns. Yes. Like just chock full of goofy lines. Like I said, I, I'm I'm really astounded at the idea that the script is improvised because it's so funny and the editing is really tight on a lot of a lot of the gags. They'll cut right after somebody says something funny to another scene, gives you a moment to laugh. Like I, I was really surprised at how well it's put together, especially since Noah Liebman, director, uh, has not done much outside of this. Like he has not put together a lot of features. This is this is a small one uh, in the big scheme of things. Yeah, it reminded me of one of the things that's so funny is that they are so hard on these kids. Like these kids are, first of all, they're, they're amazing. But, the, you know, when they are meeting with their acting coaches and music teachers and stuff, the, they're just like overly harsh. The, <laughs> that's part of what's so so funny is they're talking to these kids like they're adults, like they're trained adults and they're not. And they're like, <laughs> what what are your character's allergies? I need to know so we can further inform the performance. Like right. <laughs> the, this kind of le- level of uh of scrutiny and like uh again the music is supposed to be cheesy like um or uh amos and rebecca diane write a musical every summer that the kids perform and it it sounds like a total disaster and then when it's finally performed it's actually really really good and and heart heartwarming but it but it does a good job of it it's satire it's parody but there's also a lot of kind of real elements uh, because we can tell from our, perf- our teachers are people that have great passion for what they do and they were very good, but didn't quite make it. And it kind of addresses the issues like that. Yeah. I, I love the like stress that these camp counselors are putting on themselves because they're so passionate about Adirondacks and about like the arts, even though all of them are functionally failed performers. Um, there's a great, after the tryout scene, there's a great bit where they've got like a chalkboard with every kid's name and photo and they've got like roles and they're trying to assign them and like arguing viciously over who's going to play the lead in this role versus like, who's going to be this and trying desperately to like figure out something that like at a summer camp for three months, nobody would care about, right? Like nobody should care that much. And Did, well, the, like, well, the funny the funny thing is like I've been in I've been in that exact scenario. Um the camps I worked at were there were music camps, so you were deciding like who to put in one what ensemble. Yeah. Um and it's that's totally what you're because you're trying to balance it, but also you're trying to like you know, it, like it's so funny because they decide on the cast list and then you have angry parents calling and that's like exactly what happens. Like, why isn't my kid first chair? He's so better better than everyone else. Like Yeah. It, it, it's not far from the truth. I think that like that leads into well, what's probably my favorite performance in the movie is low key Jimmy Tatro as Troy. He's so <laughs> funny because he's so different than everybody else, but he's like this blustery, like big confidence kind of guy. So you can tell he's insecure when he says stuff, and like none of the kids go for it, and nobody listens to him. Uh, meanwhile, like Ben Platt gets on stage and sings like two bars of a musical, and every kid is like silent, like to listen to him because they they think he's great and they respect him. And and Troy's like trying so desperately to 
be cool and meet these kids on their level, but also save the camp, right? Because it's going under and, and he can't figure out like how he's going to dig it out and ends up being like a really understated but really funny performance. Yeah, him like picking up the phone the day after like all the roles are assigned for some for some mom and he's like, yes, I understand that your son did not get the role you want. Yes, I understand. I didn't, I didn't sign the castings. <laughs> Like just Dude, trying to like kind of ward off angry parents and just keep things running like really it, really funny. It is crazy. Yeah, that that yeah. is funny. The, and I didn't it, actually, no, that's a real thing. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Like it's parody, but it it is very much based on how it is to to work a summer camp to deal with performing children and their parents and their aspirations. Yeah. Um, and and things like that like like i said i i worked over a decade of, of summers at a music camp and it was like ptsd <laughs> some of this odd it's really cool to see how much of it's shot practical too yeah they shot it in less than a month they just went out and rented a summer camp right and they just like had a bunch of kids out okay yeah we're gonna shoot it we're gonna be here this day some of you're gonna be in this class like just kind of put it together and it ends up coming out really great like for a small pet project that's indie and low budget and covered in film grain to feel really really homey and all handheld to feel documentary um i think it it sticks to landing like i i was really pleased yeah i wouldn't mind showing this to other people um, who either did summer camp or yeah, theater kids in my life, which I don't know any, but if you're one of you listening to this show, I think theater camp might be a movie for you. Any, any other thoughts for recommendations? I think I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend theater camp? Yeah, I absolutely would. Uh, it's on Hulu. So it's streaming. If you have that, that service, it's a lot of fun. It's a quick 90 minutes. Um, especially it, you'll find it hilarious if you've ever worked or gone to a summer camp, if you've been involved in the arts, uh, at any level, um, and, and it's, um, it's heartwarming, it's heartbreaking at, at times, but it's really fun and entertaining and it goes, goes by quick. So, uh, highly recommend. Uh, yeah, I'm in the same boat. Theater camp's great. You should totally go watch it. Not perfect, but like for a small 95 minute feature, you could certainly do worse. It's a great laugh. If you got a Hulu subscription, you should totally go check out theater camp. You know, any theater kids, camp kids send it their way. I think they might have a good time. And that wraps our show. God, episode 227 of Off Script in the bag. Andy, uh, it's a lean month at the movies. Not a lot going on after summer. That, that haunting in Venice and none two story we, we covered earlier said it great. Things are slowing down. So with that in mind, what are we watching next week? So we're taking next week off. But uh, for those of, of you on the lookout, uh, the big release for September 22nd is Expend Four Bulls, Expendables 4, that action series, which is getting more and more diminishing returns will be out next week, but we will be back on October 3rd and we're going to take a look at the creator, the new sci-fi epic starring John David Washington directed by Gareth Edwards. And we're also going to finally take a look at after sun, which was a, a big film from last year starring Paul Mescal um, that I've heard nothing but good things about since then. And I'm still hearing about that movie and it's already way past the award season. Like it won. I don't think it actually won very much. It might've won a writing award. Um, but we're going to be checking that out and that's on Paramount plus with Showtime. Um, and then also that this comes out September 29th is saw X, which we are going to see if we can fit, fit that into the, the show at some, some point. Uh, but that's going to be on the, on September 29th, but the creator and after sun for October 3rd. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to After Sun for sure. Um, you're right, we've been hearing nothing. It's like tar, like just nothing but good things. Everybody who sees it says it's a revelation. Excited to watch it. Uh, if you've got Paramount with Showtime, check it out and cover it with us uh, here in a couple of weeks. The creator is getting some really, really early buzz today. 
I know embargoes don't live for another couple of days, so obviously we don't have anything to say on the show on it. But uh, I can report that, like, from the sites that have seen it, which is like comicbook.com, right, and like nerdculture.net, they all say it's great, and it's like, well, sure, like I, I, you know, we'll, we'll see. It's that classic like Rotten Tomatoes problem. Like the first fifty reviews are soft, right? Like you don't you don't get to the real critiques till till the movie drops, but we'll we'll see how it does. Might be great. I don't know. It certainly looks like a fun universe. Uh, but if you enjoyed the show today, if you want to know what we've got going on here in the next couple of weeks, any suggestions on movies we should watch, thoughts on movies we've seen, whatever you got, you can reach us at offscriptfilmreview.com. You can send us mail at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Direct correspondence with your boys. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the usual social media places. Of course, you can find the audio version of the podcast that you might be listening to right now on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartMedia. And of course, the video version of the show is uploaded to YouTube with individual reviews, thumbnails, interviews. There's all kinds of things going on, on the YouTube page. You should go check out the YouTube page as soon as you're done listening to this. Or if you're watching it right now, just click on another video or like or subscribe or rate or review or comment. Just engage with us in some way and let us know that you enjoy the show. It means a lot to us and it helps us immensely in the fight for the almighty algorithmic fame. Uh, from all of us, I think that covers it, Offscript Film Review, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.